episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. Get ready. This year's Learn to Homebrew Day is going to be a smash. Join the celebration on Saturday, November 4th by brewing a recommended smash beer. These recipes use a single malt and single hop and are perfect for experienced and beginning homebrewers. For the official Learn to Homebrew Day recipes, brewing tutorials, and a free brewing book, visit homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental. That's homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental for event and book offer details. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Welcome to The Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick-hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, less ukulele. (sighs) (laughs) Yep, so much for the ukulele. All right, on this episode, we are actually inspired by a listener who just dropped a message on our Facebook page, Experimental Brewing, uh, listener Dan Tompkins from Wyoming. He uh, wrote on the Facebook page, Hey, I have an idea for a Brew Files episode, how to approach a new style, something you haven't brewed before, and how to develop a new recipe for that style. Talk about the resources or commercial beers you'd look into, determine how simple slash complex you want the recipe to be, and how to set expectations on a new brew. Maybe grisette would be a style for this exercise if Drew hasn't done one before. Just a thought, maybe a bad one. Well, first, Dan, I have to say, not a bad idea, actually a great idea, and it was uh, something that we were looking at in the hopper, but you know what? You've made us go ahead and do it right now. That's right. So, hey, look at that, people. We actually listen to our listeners. (laughs) Because, no, no big surprise, between Denny and I, I think we've done more than our fair share of recipes. And we're both always looking around for different inspirations, different things to do, and, you know, really just trying to tackle everything. I know people think that Denny is all just about, like, scientific experimentation thanks to the show and repetition and dialing things in. But, I mean, there is a playful side. Otherwise, how do you get a mushroom beer? And we all have to start somewhere. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, so uh, Denny, what do you think of the topic? I think it's a, I think it's a great topic. It's something that I'm always interested in hearing about. I mean, I I pretty much have a set routine that I use when I'm going to be developing a new recipe, but I like to hear how other people go about it too, just so I can see how wacky their minds are. That's part of the idea behind some of the other recipe shows that we do is give you that insight into how somebody thinks and what sort of 
ticks and foibles you'll actually see reflected in their brewing. On your second point, Dan, about a grisette, we actually do have a grisette show in the works. I'm just being incredibly lazy about recording it because I do actually like grisette. There are a couple breweries around me that make one. And in truth, if you take my Saison experimental recipe that we use for making, you know, our Saison yeast experiments and some of the other Saison experiments we do, if you added more hops to it, particularly finishing hops, that would effectively be a grisette. Uh, but that's a subject for another show. Yes, it is. Without further ado, let's get into how we do this magical thing called recipe development. So, obviously, these recipes that we come up with, they don't all just, you know, come out of pure ether. Uh, some people may say I pull some of my recipes from nethers. <laughs> yeah, bend over and grab one, right? Yeah, exactly. So, let's talk inspiration. So, Denny, how do you get inspired to tackle a new recipe? Uh, a lot of times the inspiration comes when I uh, learn about a particular ingredient, say like the uh, the Great Western Sacra 50 malt that we have worked with or uh, some of this new cryo hop powder that we're going to start experimenting with. You know, the ingredient itself kind of like drives an idea for a beer, uh, sometimes just reading about a beer that's out there will do it for me. Occasionally, uh, drinking another beer will set me off on a quest to uh, try and do something similar. But most of the time, I think it it just comes from something that pops into my head. You know, like the, the bourbon vanilla porter recipe uh, was inspired by the fact that I wanted to make a barrel-aged beer for Christmas and I didn't have enough time. I, I get an idea of the flavor that I'm going for in my head and that kind of like uh, drives me to figure out how to create that. So assuming you don't really pull yours out of the nether regions, how do you go about it? I think a lot of times I'm actually inspired by other brewers and other home brewers. Seeing some of the crazy, wacky, uh, interesting things that people do, or even just some of the interesting flavors. I would say I'm very, mm -hmm. very largely flavor-driven. Flavors that just pop into your head or flavors that you experience someplace else and want to translate? Oh, a little of both, right? You know, Obviously, if you look through the recipes that, that we've talked about before, there, it's very apparent mm -hmm. that I have a lot of food-inspired ideas. Look at peanut butter, jelly ale, uh, cookie ale, or the uh, clam chata saison. Although that was really more a uh, inspired by spite <laughs> recipe. <laughs> but no, so a lot, a lot of times for me, my inspirations come down to a flavor idea. And a lot of my flavor ideas are food-based. And sometimes that's driven by ingredients. So, for instance, the first time trying citra hops and realizing how tropical right. and mango-y those were, right? That big sort of pa fruit flavor. The first thing that occurred to me was, you know, this is kind of like a, a pina colada tropical fruit drink thing. And so that naturally said to me, okay, well, I want something that gives a little sweetness. And so I went wheat and that became the citrus saison. So a lot of the thought processes like that, unless it's a food thing where I'm like trying to deliberately mimic a flavor of mm -hmm. like, say, an oatmeal raisin cookie. Yeah, that's interesting because I... You know, I, I, I seldom approach it in terms of trying to say like recreate a, a food or something. You know, I, I just kind of like get a hankering for a certain blend of flavors and just go from there. Well, and sometimes there's things like I'll do inspiration. I'll, I'll take inspiration mm -hmm. from things I haven't done. And I mean, I think that's obviously fairly, a fairly right. basic statement right. for all of us. 
I will look around and sometimes it's like, yo, you know, I, I haven't made, I haven't made something with a good malt character in a long while, right? I've been on a hop run. I, I need to make something malty. Or say, for instance, the trip that I took in October to Fargo, you know, running back into Irish Red Ale and going, oh, you know, I haven't thought about this in forever. From there, the inspiration takes hold and, you know, forces me down that rabbit hole. So I will say I do get a lot of inspiration from food. I get a lot of inspiration about flavor, and I'll get a lot of inspiration from other breweries and homebrews. One of my favorite things to do is to go around a beer festival, and I carry a notebook with me at almost all times, uh, mostly because my memory <laughs> as I've gotten older is shot. And if I don't write things down, I forget about them. And the problem is my brain's generating ideas all the time, so ideas fly in and out of my head. I've probably lost three or four ideas for the great American novel just by not writing them down. Yeah, well, listen, when you get to be my age, your brain won't generate so many ideas and you won't have to worry about it as much. But I carry I carry a notebook. So, and I'm not like the sort of festival person who sits there and writes down every beer that I had at a festival because okay, I used to do that, but that frankly takes way too much time and I'd rather be drinking the beer. Um and what I what I will do is I will take down ideas for things that you know, inspire me. So, boom. You know, I run across uh, a cucumber wheat beer. Oh, you know, that's an interesting combination. What can I play with that way? I had some really great sour beers the other week in Tampa Bay. What can I do with that? As a key to that, and largely I think something that's unique when you're in a position like we are, is I also carry business cards. And I have a couple different business cards. And if I'm at a festival or something, I will take business cards and I will use them to generate ideas and more importantly, hand them off to people who have great ideas so that I can get them to get in contact with me. What I always do, and you'll see me do this at HomebrewCon in a couple months, is I will have business cards with me. And as we're talking, I will write down the basic idea, the thing that I want to talk about. And I will give that to the person who I'm talking to so that they have a memory of what it was that we talked about and why we should uh, why we should get in contact. I use other brewers a lot as inspiration. Yeah, that that's interesting. I, I do that a little bit, but not not a lot to tell you the truth. Um have my tastes fairly well set and I enjoy tasting things that fall outside of that. But when it comes to making five gallons of something, I have a pretty good idea at least of the general parameters that I want that beer to fall within. Well, there you go, Mr. Robot. <laughs> hey, man. You know, uh, we all have different ways of doing things, and that's mine. Indeed. Well, so now, speaking of flavors and drinking, let's move on from inspiration, right? Because I think, obviously, inspiration is all about observation. And sometimes that observation is external, sometimes that observation is internal. But at some point in time, we have to go from observation to actually building. Right, right. And so I like to call the next part of it the research phase, which is also better known as the drinking and reading phase. <laughs> so, you know, obviously we can talk about uh, drinking the beers. Last week's episode of the, the main show, we, we sat down and we drank Sticky Hands from Block 15. And we talked with Nick about how he made that beer. That's an example of, you know, research to understand, hey, you know, how is this guy using these ingredients to produce this really incredible beer? What do you do, Danny, in this way? Well, you know, I have uh, I have a favorite book for recipe research, which is Greg Noonan's Seven Barrels Brewery book. It's I think it's out of print, but you can still find copies around. And just through my experience, I have found that those recipes are really, really in the ballpark for my tastes 
So when I'm thinking about brewing a new style and, uh, you know, the beers are pretty much too style in that book. I'll start by looking and seeing what that book uh, recommends for the recipe. I'll then uh, pull out my copy of Brewing Classic Styles and uh, see how that correlates. Uh, I have to admit, though, in all honesty, if there is a a big discrepancy between the recipes, I kind of lean towards Noonan's because I've had such great luck with it. Uh, I'll pull out the BJCP guidelines. I'll take a look at uh, what the style is supposed to taste like, what the common ingredients are for it, which is really helpful. And uh, they also have a list of commercial examples of a particular beer. So if I'm trying to mimic a commercial beer, then I can go out and buy one and uh, and try it and see what I think I need to do to recreate that beer. Uh, of course, there's, you know, I can go around and ask on forums if I'm totally uncertain about what I want to do or if I have a choice between, say, a couple different ingredients, which way I should go. The AHA recipe wiki, which a lot of people aren't uh, familiar with, is a good resource also. So, you know, I, I tend to, if I'm trying to recreate something else, I tend to read a lot first. But whether I'm trying to recreate a style that's already there or come up with something different like for my bourbon vanilla porter or something like that what i try and do is develop that flavor in my mind so i can kind of use what i call taste imagination to taste that beer and give me an idea of my target because uh, i i have been through the phase of throwing uh, ingredients together to see what happens and now I kind of like need a target and aim my ingredient choices to that target. Just to take a step back real quick, because I think, right. uh, sadly, there are probably a lot of listeners who don't know Greg Noonan and Seven Barrel, uh, Seven Barrel Brewing. Seven Barrel Brewing uh, was a brew pub in Vermont. I'm not certain if it's still operational or not, but <laughs> Gregory J. Noonan, as his author page is listed on Amazon, was the brewer there. Very influential in the early early development of a lot of craft beer stuff. He wrote one of the the best books from a technical point of view, both for homebrewers and nascent craft brewers at the time, uh, originally called Brewing Lager Beer was the first version of it, but it later updated to New Brewing Lager Beer. That is such a fantastic book in terms of like walking you through a lot of different techniques and styles. He also did one of the HA style books, uh, I think on uh, Scotch Ale, and was also reportedly the creator of Denny's favorite style, the black IPA. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I'm going to disagree with you because I don't think that uh, New Brewing Lager Beer is a good book for home brewers at all. I think that it's really aimed at uh, commercial brewers, and I did not find much in that book that really related to me as a home brewer. But that's me. But I think you're, I think you're right about the Seven Barrel Brew House book. I'm not seeing it on Amazon. If it's not on Amazon... It doesn't exist. Yeah, I think I think if you want a copy of the Seven Barrels Brewery book, you're going to have to start looking around eBay or something like that. We talked about the BGCP guidelines. We talked about the AHA forum, uh, where you and I obviously hang out a lot. And there are a lot of other forums out there, which I think you're on just about every single one of them. But any blogs that you uh, follow? Because I find that there are a couple of authors that I know. Obviously, we have our good friends Mike and Marshall with uh, Mad Fermentationist and Brewosophy doing a lot of that stuff. There's a lot of new bloggers out there who are doing a lot of really great work, particularly when you're looking at like some of the newer styles. Yeah, right. And 
to tell you the truth, no, I don't use any of those. <laughs> uh, for no particular reason other than I already have a set routine. I guess if I wanted to brew something and I couldn't find any uh, information in it uh, in the normal method, then I would start looking farther afield. Yeah, I, I guess the one blog that may have a little bit of influence on me in the future is uh, Scott Janish's. Even though I probably won't brew any of the recipes he uses, I will probably get into experimenting with some of the techniques that he talks about. I think that's that's a very important part to talk about here. Is that I mean, obviously, when you're looking at, say, brewing classic styles, there's a lot of recipes in there that you can follow and just use, and you can do the same thing with Jamil's style columns. You can do the same thing with you know my column that's in Beer Advocate uh, every month. But I think people can get lost on this idea then that, oh, well, all you're doing is copycatting. And I remember when Brewing Classic Styles first came out, that there was a lot of talk going on amongst competition circuits because the conceit of Brewing Classic Styles is that all the recipes are award-winning beers, right? They've won medals. So therefore, you know, these are tried and true and proven recipes. So I remember when it came out, there was a lot of people out there who were essentially going and saying, oh, if I want to brew for competition, I'm going to go brew Jamil's recipe for this and submit it. And so I remember there was a while where, I swear to God, every time you sat in a category, you went, well, these three beers are all the exact same recipe. Yeah, right, right. I think it's very important to call out that, you know, what we are talking about here is just like what you said with Scott's blog, looking through these recipes is not, and other people's blogs and other people's books and all that, is not just about picking up and cloning, right? It's sometimes just about getting the inspiration from what they're doing and going, well, yeah, you know, I like that, but I want to do this. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, I think that if you just blindly copy somebody else's recipe more than once, you're not learning anything. I mean, I know that for me with, uh, with brewing classic styles, the value comes in taking a look at their recommendations, maybe melding that with what I found other places, brewing it, seeing how it comes out and then adjusting. I mean, you know me, man, I am, I am Mr. Test Batch. Uh, I, uh, I tend to brew a recipe several times or, or more until I get it tweaked just the way I like it, you know, tweaking just one little thing at a time. Mm -hmm. I, I don't mind doing that. Some people find that boring. I find it really, really interesting to try it and then assess those little changes. I'll also put out there other things that are non-obvious. The Oxford Companion to Beer that mm -hmm. Garrett Oliver edited a couple of years ago. It has some mistakes in it, but it, overall, it's a very good resource for kind of getting you started down a path. If you're looking at some of the American beer styles, uh, particularly the older American beer styles, and you listen to the Cream Ale episode, for instance, I mentioned that there's the treatise on American brewing from Western Brewers that is old and expensive, but it's a very good book for that sort of stuff. You can dig around, you can find a lot of things. I take a lot of inspiration from, say, uh, Ron Pattinson over a uh, shot about Barclay Perkins, because he gives some insight into what old styles look like. So other places I will also say that I draw for research is uh, right back to that thing that I'm terrible at because I am a nerd, which is socializing. <laughs> and we have to realize brewers like to talk. You know, home brewers and, and craft brewers are very proud of what they do. They do like to talk and share. So if you have a question, like say, I want to make, you know, Julius or I want to make Tide Hands IPA, you know, your favorite local brewery has done a beer that inspires you, reach out to them. Just email and say, hey, you know, I really like your beer. You know, can you tell me 
how to make it or, you know, some general guidelines. Don't be shocked or surprised if somebody says, no, I'm not going to tell you that's a trade secret. Yeah, whatever. But a lot of times brewers will come back and they'll, they'll give you, you know, details. I've had people hand me recipe sheets before. Yeah, and uh, there are some breweries that even uh, post their recipes online, you know, uh, Deschutes, I think Stone has done that. Uh, mm-hmm. So Several uh, breweries will do that, and that's a good place to start also. On that same note, though, I will say, beware the false lead. And I'm looking particularly at you, my Belgian brewer friends, because I know there are some Belgian brewers out there who like to lie, or like to... Hide the truth? Well, I was going to say, they they like to omit certain things. They never they never tell a direct lie, or maybe they do, but a lot of times they like to admit. Kind of like when you ask your mother-in-law for a recipe, right? And she leaves out the one important ingredient. Yeah, exactly. The mystery ingredient, or, or no, we don't use coriander. Yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> so you do have to be aware sometimes of false leads, and that's where recipe creation and brewing and repetition actually will come in handy, because sometimes it just turns out that you have to figure out the mystery ingredient on your own. Any other any other thoughts on the research phase? Other things that you do that we haven't talked about? Uh, just one other book I wanted to mention, which was uh, Michael Jackson's New World Guide to Beer, which I think may also be a difficult one to get in touch with. But I recommend that every home brewer get a copy. Not only are there beautiful, beautiful photographs. This is a tabletop book. But Michael Jackson kind of invented the art and method of writing about beer. And if reading his descriptions of various beers from around the world doesn't make your mouth water, then you need to uh, turn in your carboy right now. And then, of course, you also can say that Michael Jackson is responsible for creating a lot of beer styles. Well, yeah, that's to me, that's beside the point, though. It's it's his descriptions of the beers that give me an inspiration because I can almost taste those flavors as I'm reading. So that covers our recipe inspiration and research phase. Now let's talk about the recipe creation phase, because, Denny, I know that you have a very particular methodology. Yes, and we, uh, we'll do this to the uh, tune of Teen Angel. Oh, God. Teen? No. Um, you know, what I basically, I just kind of like make my best guess for the first pass based on everything that I have read and researched and maybe even tasted in some of the examples of the beer because you got to start someplace. And like I've said, I, I don't mind brewing a recipe over and over again to get it right. So I feel like, okay, I'm going to take my best stab at this see how it comes out compared to what I had in my mind, and I will make another batch and adjust from there. I would say that at this point, due to a a lot of experience, I'm probably about 50-50 on hitting what I want the first time around. That doesn't mean that if I get what I don't want, it's a bad beer. It's just not what I was intending to do. I see. And so do you have general guidelines of what you follow? No. <laughs> Not really. I mean, you know, I hear people saying, "Oh, I, you know, I never use more than five percent crystal, or I never use carapils," and uh, I don't have those rules. I, I will use whatever ingredient in whatever amount it takes to get the results that I want. No rules, buddy. No rules. No rules, indeed. All right. Well, I'm seeing for me, I'll do the research phase. You know, I'll go through and I'll try everything and try and figure out what I can do, and then I do actually have 
some basic rules because I have a whole thing. You may have heard me talk about it or not uh, t- not talk about it, but a uh, thing that I call the uh, Transformers. Uh, and basically, the real the real crux of it is it comes down to the idea of I have certain templates, right? So I have a co- I do have a couple of rules. I try and match uh, ingredient origins. So if I'm doing an American beer, a lot of times I'll use American ingredients, unless it comes down to something like an IPA where I've developed preferences over time, and I like a combination of P- American pale malt and Maris Otter. Uh, but I'll have sort of general templates. Like, I start almost all of my Belgian beers with the same general background, right? You know, some Pilsner malt, some wheat malt, uh, and just uh, go, uh, go... Would you stop with the ukulele? <laughs> For the Belgian beers, I'll start with that Pilsner base, and I'll almost always bitter with something like Magnum, and I'll have a couple of Noble Hops in there. But what I find is that if I dig through my recipe archives, I have enough sort of standard templates, things like my standard IPA, my standard Saison, my standard triple, my standard lager, all these sorts of things, these standard recipes that I've just developed over the past couple of years, that I know I can take those, and based on the information I've gained from drinking the beers and reading about the beers and looking through the styles and seeing what people are saying and looking at other people's recipes, I know I can go and take those standards and adjust them knowing that I'm starting from kind of a known base. You know, and that's, I guess I do kind of the same thing a lot of time, although I guess I don't really think of it as templates, but it, it pretty much boils down to the same thing. For instance, if I'm making uh, an American pale ale or American IPA, uh, I'll start with pale malt and about uh, 10% crystal and I'll try and get my uh, BU to GU ratio, the bittering units compared to the gravity units, try and get those into the maybe like 0.8 to 1 range for uh, a pale ale and a 1 to 1 range for an IPA. Uh, for a Belgian beer, yeah, I'll start with, uh, you know, Pilsner malt, maybe uh, 15, 20% table sugar, and go for a, a mellow bittering hop like Magnum or Horizon. So so in a way, you know, I do kind of have like starting points for various beers, but I guess I guess I can start thinking of them as templates also. Well, you have to remember, I'm a computer guy, so I, I tend to think in computer terms. So for me, the template, it's a perfect way to start, right? Because again, it's it's less risky. I think part of the reason for Dan's question, and a lot of brewers who ask this sort of question, is, you know, look, it takes me time and money to go brew a batch of beer. How do I minimize the chances of me screwing it up? Yeah, well, and again, you know, I, I think you have to differentiate the two types of screwing up. There's screwing up as in not making the beer you had in mind, mm-hmm. which is not a bad thing. And then, then there's screwing up as in making something undrinkable which is not a good thing and fortunately doesn't happen to most people all that often. But I do think if you start with templates, you know, if you start with these kind of bog standard recipes that you have, they give you a better chance of maybe not necessarily directly cloning a beer. And I hate cloning in terms of like as a goal. I get it. It's target shooting, but I've never understood the real point of it. I would really rather say I make beers inspired by. <laughs> yeah, right. I, exactly. I, it, you know, that's something that I learned in, in the music business. Uh, if you're going to rip something off, just say you were inspired by it. It's not a ripoff. It's an homage. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, and 
I, I very seldom try to clone a beer. Truthfully, I hate that word when it comes to uh, home brewing because I don't feel that you can clone a beer. You're never going to make it exactly like the one you're going for. So just get inspired by something and, and put your own little twist on it. That's kind of how my rye IPA recipe came about. It started off uh, as a recipe in Brew Your Own magazine for an IPA. I like the idea of the hops, although I the only thing I kept from that was, I think, Columbus hops. It had no rye in the original recipe. Uh, and so I started, I brewed that. I thought, well, that's a pretty good IPA. What would happen if I did this and started playing around with different things? And that's how it came out. So even even though the original one may not have been exactly what I had in mind, it was still a really good IPA. Well, there you go. And again, I mean, we, we sit here and we talk about this sort of stuff as gospel truth. But hey, look, if you like cloning, go for it. Yeah, well, it's it's homebrewing. You get to do what you want to do. So just because Drew and I want to do things one way doesn't mean that you have to do them the same way. All right. So last step, we've created the recipe. You are inside a ProMash. I'm inside a Beersmith too. Right. I don't know about you, but I've spent a lot of time just kind of noodling around both ProMash and Beersmith 2, making theoretical beers, going, what would it be if I wanted to do this? And then they never get brewed. <laughs> I have not reached that level of nerdism. Uh, okay, fine, I have. I, I've totally distracted myself uh, when I should be doing other things by going, I'm going to make a recipe for this. I find it fun, but that's what I am. All right, so now we've created the recipe. You've either done multiple iterations of the recipe and, and farting around in, inside your favorite tool, or you've just laid it down in a straight shot. You've bought your ingredients, you brewed it, and now you've come down to the tasting. So, Danny, why don't you tell people, what is it when you're actually at that point, when you're in the drinking phase? What are you looking at, and what are you thinking about in terms of, did I reach my goal? How do I adjust it? You know, What, what do you look at in order to move? Basically, what I'll, I'll do is I will pull up that taste image that I have in my mind and compare the beer that I'm drinking to it. Uh, and in this particular instance, I'm doing beer tasting. I'm not really doing beer drinking. I'm taking sips. I'm swirling them around my mouth. I'm sitting there on my couch thinking about the flavors I'm getting and how they compare to what I had in my mind. Sometimes I'm going to find out that the beer is not what I had in mind and I need to change things. And sometimes I'm going to find out that it's not what I had in mind and I discovered something really cool that I had no idea about. I, I sit there and I, I evaluate, say, the, the bitterness compared to the malt. I evaluate what the malt flavor is, whether it's like, you know, toasty or clean or sweet. Uh, I evaluate what the hop flavor is and how that plays against the malt. And if they complement each other or clash, I'll uh, evaluate what kind of aroma is coming off the beer from the, uh, the malt, the hops, and the yeast and decide if that is pleasant or if it needs to be changed somehow in order to uh, to, to make it more pungent or less pungent or more fruity or less fruity. Uh, so basically, it's it comes down to a hedonistic kind of thing also. You know, there's what what was I intending this beer to be and how do I like the way it turned out? And if I like the way it turned out, whether it's what I wanted it to be or not, then I'm happy. 
Uh, I will probably go back and rebrew it just as a curiosity thing to see if I can make it more like I had in mind. If I can't, at least I know that I've got a damn good recipe there. I think that's the important part is you really do have to kind of think in terms of what the flavors are that you have, where it is that you're going. And this is probably the most challenging thing I think for new brewers is dealing with part of the reason why you and I can do what we do is because we have fairly extensive database in our heads of what things taste like. And so we can, we can sit there and go, ah, well, I'm not really digging the Marisauer character in this. Maybe what would happen if I switched that over to Munich? This Columbus was either the wrong choice or it was a bad batch of Columbus. Not this yeast, that yeast. I think a lot of that sort of change up really does come down to knowing your ingredients and really kind of going from there. And the problem is, as much as I'd love to be able to tell you there's a great database that helps you with all that, it really does come down to, I think, personal experience because all of our organoleptic perceptions of different ingredients and their impacts are going to change from person to person. Yeah, you know what, man? It really comes back to what we always say, which is uh, if you want to become a better brewer, brew more. Before we leave this episode about recipe development, I wanted to walk through a particular example that I just had. I wrote it up for Beer Advocate a couple months ago. Remember, I talked earlier about my trip to Fargo, where I ran into a whole bunch of you know Irish red ales with American influence that kind of made me go, huh, I haven't had one of these in years, and I need to go make one. I didn't really have a good recipe that I trusted for an Irish red ale because I think most of mine were like American reds. And even then, most of my American reds I was making back in my early days of my homebrewing career, they weren't what I'd want to drink now. So I went and I adjusted. And what I did was I did a bunch of reading and I obviously tasted a bunch of beers while I was there in Fargo about around the whole idea, took a bunch of notes and kind of sat down and actually started with what really is kind of a brown beer base and adjusted. And so the final recipe that I ended up with is something I called wood chipper Irish red. <laughs> I know it's a Fargo joke. I love, and, you know, it. I, I love it. I love it. You know, I was hesitant to make Fargo jokes while I was in Fargo, but all the Fargo residents were making Fargo jokes. So whatever. Why not? The number of wood chipper references I saw around Fargo, North Dakota were immense. So for five and a half gallons, what I ended up with was a beer that I kind of wanted to get into that sort of nice bright red color range. And kind of keep it in a sessionable place. This one's about 4.9% alcohol, which is slightly over our guidelines, but sometimes guidelines are suggestions. But it comes in with a 15.2 SRM, which is in that really bright red area. For the malt bill, I chose 9.5 pounds of Maris Otter. Now, I have expressed many times my love of Maris Otter, but I wanted Maris Otter in this because I wanted those toasty notes with the biscuit notes without being overwhelming. Like I think you'd get if you chose something like a Munich. And you certainly get more character than you do if you use a pale malt. A half pound of a medium British crystal. I usually prefer Simpsons. And then a quarter of a pound of roasted barley. And that's what pops that red color, right? Between the crystal and the, the roasted barley. But the ro- roasted barley is what really gives the pa. And then for hopping, I went with just a half ounce of Target at 11% for 60 minutes. And then a little bit of a very old school British hop, Brambling Cross, at knockout. And that's it. Ferment that one with Irish ale yeast, or even use the USO5 1056 White Labs 01 complex to go even more neutral. But the whole idea was all these things were built off of this idea where, okay, I got the the roasted barley because I've used that in the past to make things red. 
and that works. Nowadays, of course, if you want to really sort of cheat, you could use uh, the Sacra 50 that Denny mentioned earlier in the episode, or you could use Red X, and those will pop a big color, but those don't come with the same sort of notes. But all this combined together, and the recipe was really developed from those couple of tastes that I had while I was in Fargo, and looking through a couple of notes about different things, including, like, for instance, the roasted barley note for Red Ales. We just ran through that recipe super quick. Don't worry about taking notes. I'll include a link to it on the website. But Denny, what, what do you think of that idea of recipe development? Yeah, man, it, it sounds like a like a plan to me. Uh, that you know that to me, it, it sounds like a beer. If I made it, I would probably need to tweak it a couple times. A quarter pound of roasted barley is a a fair bit uh, for something mm-hmm. like that, to my mind. But who knows until you try it, you know? So yeah. Good, good first shot. So there you go, folks. Thanks for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this exploration in exactly how do we tackle a brand new recipe. And obviously, we'll be covering some more of this when we're talking about new styles that are emerging. But really, this was just a quick glimpse into our thought process. Now, remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at experimentalbrewing, on Facebook, like this episode was inspired by, on Reddit, on just about every homebrew forum out there. So don't forget that you can also support the podcast by leaving us a review on iTunes, click the Amazon, AHA, or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is the San Gabriel Valley Humane Society, because, hey, we love them dogs. All right, so until next time, remember to always brew wacky or brew experimentally. God help us. We'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files. <laughs> oh, that was fun. The next generation of countertop home distillation systems is here. The all-new Airstill Pro from Still Spirits is a revolutionary still that will look right at home alongside your everyday kitchen appliances. This small-batch 2-in-1 distillation system operates in either pot still or reflex mode and allows you to craft high-quality light and dark spirits at home. No hoses, no complicated assembly, just plug-and-play. The Airstill Pro column cools itself with a built-in high-powered fan. The Still Spirits Airstill Pro is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer. Learn more about the Airstill Pro at stillspirits.com or check them out on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube.